0: And you can take your Bibles and you can open up to Romans chapter 12. And if you don't mind, I'm going to be seated as well. Um, I, I am, um, I'm going to sit this morning because my body is not functioning the way it's supposed to, which is a, a regular occurrence for me. Some of you know. Um, but it's fitting. Uh, I won't get into all the details. I've got some joint issues. And, and this morning in particular, I got a lot of pain and a lack of mobility in my foot and my ankle. But... Um, Again, I I think in one sense it's the the providence of God, it's um, the kindness of God, because um, I get to be a living, breathing, negative illustration for our text this morning. (laughs) When the members of the body don't do what they're supposed to do, the whole body suffers. And this is true when it comes to physical um, illnesses or injuries in our own bodies. When part of our body's not working the way it's supposed to, the rest of our body tends to have to compensate. I don't think I'm explaining anything new to you, but many of us know this very personally. We know it very well. Our, Our body compensates, so when the foot's not working the way it's supposed to, the knee begins to compensate. And when the knee begins to compensate, it begins to work in a way that it's actually, in many ways, not supposed to. It bears a burden that it's not intended to to bear. And then then the lower back tends to bear a different kind of burden, or the hips maybe. There's compounding injuries that follow um, from one injury. And in many ways, I think um, that's one of the reasons why people, uh, both in vocational ministry, but also um, when it comes to the roles in serving the life of the church, end up uh, burning out They become exhausted because they're trying to wear too many hats, they're trying to play too many roles or fulfill too many functions, and oftentimes that's a byproduct of the fact that the rest of the body is not functioning the way they're supposed to. They're not fulfilling their God-given, God-designed roles. And when that happens, the the entire body does actually suffer. You see, just like the physical body, so too the spiritual body of Christ cannot actually accomplish what it was designed to accomplish, at least not the best way. The capacity is limited. Effectiveness is limited. Speed is limited. Everything is somewhat hindered. Yeah, you you can accomplish some things and even some of the main things, but you can't do them the best way. And in many ways, that's exactly what Paul is getting after in our text. The whole suffers when each individual member is not doing their part. And it makes me appreciate and desire a healthy body, not just physically, but spiritually, with every member of the body doing what God has designed them to do. Paul hits at this idea that right thinking, like we looked at last week, ought to lead now to right serving. I want to just read our entire section again. I want to back up to verse 1, because there's such an important flow of thought, a logic here that Paul is emphasizing. He begins in verse 1, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice— The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We're going to focus mainly on verses 6 through 8 and see how Paul is building this case that out of the mercies of God, we are then transformed by the renewal of our mind The gospel impacts our lives, gives us new desires, and a new ability to think differently, to think in a way that is in contradiction and in contrast to the world around us. And that new kind of thinking about ourselves, it produces a humility, but it also comes with it a great responsibility to see ourselves in light of the whole body and the part that God has called each of us to play to benefit the whole and ultimately to bring glory and honor to His name. So, he moves now from right thinking about ourselves into this very practical reality for all of us. How are we to think rightly and therefore to serve rightly, to participate, to engage in the ministry that God has called us to in the body of Christ? And in order to do this well, we need to understand our spiritual gifts. So, I want to um, give to us and ask of us three questions that are going to help us understand our spiritual gifts. I want to ask the first one where do we get them? Second, how do we use them? And third, why do we have them? And how we answer these questions matters more than we think. So let's ask the first question, where do we get them? I want you to notice verse six, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, he says, let us use them. And otherwise, he wants to put before us this reality that every gift we have is ultimately grace. It's according to the grace of God. Being gifted, when we think about being gifted, we need to see this. It implies that it comes from another source, a source outside of us. But this is actually not the way we often think of giftedness on a human level. Oftentimes, when we think of gifted people, when we look at people's talents and abilities, we don't look at something outside of them. We actually tend to focus on something inside of them. Where did you get this gift, this talent, this ability? And we're inclined to say, I got it from me. It's just inherent in me. It's from me. Look how good I am. But the Bible tells us that every gift we have finds its source outside of us. That doesn't matter if you're an unbeliever or a believer. If you have anything good at all in this life, and I I, want to suggest to you this morning that you do. You have many good things. In fact, just pause for a second. That breath of air you just breathed, that beat of the heart, the family you sit beside, the roof over your head, all of these acts of what we call common grace, things, listen, that are are given to all of humanity, yes, to varying degrees everything we have is a gift of God, whether it's common or special. And I would say to you today, if you're in Christ today, you have been given the greatest gift of all. You have received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been saved from your sins. Jesus Christ has died in your place. Your sins have been paid for in full, nailed to the cross. You have been given a perfect righteousness by which you can now stand not only before God the Father one day in His presence, but you can live and dwell with Him for all eternity. Grace. Everything we have is grace. James 1 tells us that every good gift comes from heaven above, from the Father of lights. Every good gift we have comes from God. That means that nothing you have in your life, nothing, I want to say that very clearly, not one thing you have in your life is fundamentally or primarily a byproduct of your own effort and achievement. Everything you have, even the ability to do the things you've done to accomplish what you've accomplished, is grace. Nothing we have is earned. Nothing we have is deserved. Which, by the way, when we start believing that what we have is earned or deserved, those are two of the greatest sources or even demonstrations of pride in our life. It's like King Nebuchadnezzar, right, in the Old Testament. Look at this Babylon which I built. That's a great way to be humbled by the mighty hand of God. And I suggest if you don't want to eat grass like a cow in the field for seven years, that you avoid assuming that anything you have in your life is due to the fact that you earned it or deserve it. Realizing grace, listen, this is so important. This is part of Paul's objective. Realizing grace fuels humility, and when humility is fueled, you are prepared to serve the Lord properly. In the body of Christ, God supernaturally gifts every person And the objective of these gifts is not to make much of ourselves. That's what we looked at last week. It's instead to make much of God. It is ultimately to serve the Lord by serving one another. In fact, when God gifts the body, part of what He's doing is He's inviting us to take part of His very character and nature. He's inviting us to come and be like Him, to serve others, to be a blessing to others, to build up others. This is a part of who God is, and by extension, who the people of God are. But what are spiritual gifts? Maybe you're asking that question, so we need to kind of define this to help us think through this carefully. Let me me define it like this. Spiritual gifts are abilities given by God by His grace to every single Christian to put Him on display. Let me say that again. There are abilities given by God, by His grace, to every single Christian to put Him on display. And the the New Testament has multiple places that speak of spiritual gifts. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says. It says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Do you hear that? So, so in other words, the spirit is actually being manifested in and through believers with the objective of benefiting other people and ultimately the body of Christ, the family of God. So you see what happens is that God supernaturally gives the gifts to his people. And then, so that we don't become prideful or inflated, he makes us dependent upon him because he's the one who has to empower the gifts for his own service. So God is both the origin and the source of empowerment. Let's just consider the, the giving of the gifts a little bit further. The word that he uses here comes from the Greek word um, charisma or Charismatic. So there is a sense in which all of us are charismatic, and that simply means listen: that grace gifts. That, that that's exactly what God has done for all of us. Meaning, they're not things that you've earned. They're not things you deserve what God has given to you if you're in Christ today it's not based on anything that you've done to to deserve it. Like God doesn't say like wow, you've been a really really you know a really good person or you know what you've you've proved yourself faithful therefore I am going to give you better gifts than other people. None of your gifts listen determine your value, your worth or your dignity. In fact, that's exactly what Paul is arguing against. That's what so many in the early church were doing. Just read 1 Corinthians. They were puffing themselves up. Look look at how valuable I am because of the way God has gifted me, because of how useful I am to the body of Christ. And Paul is coming along, and he is absolutely destroying that kind of thinking, and he's reminding the church that everything they have been given finds its roots in the same place, the grace of God. You're not better because you have a different gift. You're not worse because you have a different gift. God doesn't give or withhold based on any worth or effort or dignity that somehow you can conjure up. It's all according. Listen, this is really important. God gifts his people according to his will, according to his strategy. You see, God is the architect of the body of the church. He knows what his church needs. He knows who he's calling into the church. And he knows exactly how to gift each individual person in order that the entire structure, the body, might grow and flourish in a healthy way to accomplish his ultimate purposes. God determines all of this. He also, again, empowers the using of gifts. So let's think about this a little bit together. He empowers his gifts by his spirit. And all of this is to produce his results. Remember, that the manifestation of the Spirit, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, for the common good. You know, oftentimes in the Christian life, we, we like to say, it's like, man, we, just, we need more of the Spirit. I, I want more of the Spirit filling my life. We need more of the Spirit in this place. But when we say that, we rarely think that the answer to more of the Spirit is found in each other. Isn't that true? and in how each of us is serving more faithfully the Lord. And yet that's exactly what the Bible teaches, at least in one regard. You want to see manifestation of the Spirit? All right, let's see the body of Christ functioning and fulfilling their their roles, and each member stepping up and playing their part. There's how you see the evidence of the Spirit of God. Now, there are, are four famous spiritual gift lists in the New Testament. Ephesians 4 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, and right here, Romans chapter 12. Peter says that as each has received a gift, listen to this, same as Paul, use it to serve one another. But listen to what he adds. He says, as good stewards of God's varied grace. In other words, think about this. The gift that you have been given is not ultimately yours, it's God's. You are called to steward it properly on his behalf. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. That also means this, and the New Testament says a lot about this, this isn't going to be an exhaustive sermon on spiritual gifts, but I want you to consider this, this is very important because spiritual gifts are often misunderstood and therefore abused or misused. So we need to think rightly and carefully about this. This is very important to understand, because they're used for the common good, because we are to use them to serve one another, here's what that means, no gift is for private use or personal experience. Let me say that again. No gift is for private use or personal experience. That is never the purpose of a spiritual gift. Rather, all spiritual gifts exist for the building up of the body of Christ. They are others-focused. They're not self-centered. This is why this, this charge that Paul is making, that we not have to think too highly of ourselves, it flies so much in the face of just the reality and definition of spiritual gifts. They're never for me. They're never about me. They're always for others and about the building up of others. It's also important to see this. I found this fascinating as I was studying it this week. I don't think I ever caught this before. I love when that happens when something just leaps off the page. In each list, you know what we see? We see each person of the Trinity as the source of the gifts. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians, the source of the gifts is the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4, they're called gifts of Christ. And in Romans chapter 12, God the Father is identified as the source. In other words, gifts are a Trinitarian affair. They're a Trinitarian reality. All of God, and this is always the case when God works, all of God is involved in how God equips his body. The most detailed list is found in 1 Corinthians 12, specifically verse 11 and following, And Paul goes all the way on into chapter 14 to to talk about how the gifts are to be used, and it's a really helpful section. But what we see in, in chapter 12, verse 11, is the origin is that they're empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills, as God wills. So again, see this, He empowers and He distributes as He wills according to His good pleasure. And here's what that means for you. If you're a Christian today, it means that you have been given at least one, likely more than one, spiritual gift. You have at least one thing that God has gifted you to do in the body of Christ, and sometimes there's a blend of gifts that God has given you to varying degrees. God has called you to be able to know and understand how He has gifted you. So, a question that's often asked when thinking about spiritual gifts is this okay, well, are we talking about natural gifts and abilities or supernatural gifts and abilities? Yes. Yes. It's important to understand this that spiritual gifts are not given, first of all, listen to unbelievers, okay? That the very title spiritual gifts implies that you have what, church? The Spirit. An unbeliever does not have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them. You see, they're, they're, they're given a spiritual gift. It's given, it's motivated, and it's empowered by the Spirit of God. Only those who have believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who are genuinely saved and therefore have been given new life and the abiding, indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. Listen, only those people have spiritual gifts. Verse 6, again, tells us that every one of us has been given gifts. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. We all have a gift or gifts. Um, That means, listen, that there are no um, appendixes in the body of Christ. Okay? Things that we, we don't think are useful, or in our case, we don't know what they do. But there's no appendixes in the body of Christ, which which means that, listen, there's nobody who's here whose sole purpose is just to burst at any given time and disrupt the whole body, okay? That's not a spiritual gift. It's not a spiritual gift. There are some gifts that people have and enjoy, but are not done or operating in a supernatural way. There are gifts and talents and abilities that unbelievers have, like, for example, gifts of leadership, gifts of hospitality. Every one of us knows those unbelievers who are tremendously talented in these particular areas of life. And what happens, listen, you say, well, what's the difference then between a spiritual gift and just a normal gift that anybody else can have? Here's, here's the difference. What happens is the Holy Spirit takes these natural abilities and He transforms and empowers them supernaturally to produce the results that God desires and are now used with the right motives. Do you see the difference? So, gifts that may be awesome and valuable, but are not motivated and empowered by God in His glory are now taken and transformed and used by God for His purposes. This is what God will often do. You can never produce the desires that God desires apart from the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit also, let me say this, also gives abilities beyond our natural abilities. There are some gifts that you simply do not have a trace of, even in the unbelieving, and especially in an unbelieving world, that are supernaturally empowered by God, that are given to you the moment you receive the Spirit of God. It is something new and foreign to you. I think that is very abnormal, and it is not the, 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 the usual way God works, but yes, it does happen. Everyone who is saved is gifted. And every gift is meant to be used. That's what you got to see in verse six here. Let me put it like this listen, everyone is not called to do everything, but everyone is called to do something. You got that? And there's a fundamental confusion here. I've heard it put like this there's not one person here in the Church of Jesus Christ who is the Holy Spirit's Swiss Army knife, okay? Not one of you has been gifted so perfectly and so magnificently and so diversely that all of a sudden at any point when something comes up and something needs to be done, whether it be preaching or serving or hospitality, where all of a sudden you're just like, like, what do you need? Like, I got it. Like, you need tweezers? Here you go. You need scissors? Got that. Not one of us, listen, is the Holy Spirit Swiss army knife. And that means this, that we got to figure out what part God has designed us to play so that we can play that, and then we can let other people play the parts they're supposed to play so that we can all function the way we're supposed to. The origins of our gifts are from God, and that produces humility and gratitude. Grace leads us to this place of being thankful and useful, not envious, not jealous, but thankful, thankful that God has given us anything at all, Amen. And we ought not to look at other people and say, man, I wish I was like that. Man, I had gifts like that. I wish I had gifts like this. I mean, that, that is, that is, listen, to dismiss the grace of God in your life, to lack gratitude for how God has uniquely made you. You need to be grateful for how God has made you, and you need to be thankful and let that drive you into serving Him. So, what gifts do you have? God has placed you in this body, and His desires that you know how He has gifted you that you use those gifts and that you cultivate those gifts so that you could be more fruitful and effective for him and advance the kingdom of God. I want to just maybe look secondly at some of these gifts, as Paul does here, and ask this question. How do we use them? Now, he lists here, I think, seven gifts And here we get a sense of what these gifts are to be and look like, and more importantly, again, how they are to be used. The dominating thought in Paul's mind is this, you have been gifted, therefore use your gifts. Don't sit on them, don't neglect them, don't dismiss them, use your gifts. That's the dominating argument that Paul is making. This, by the way, is not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. I don't think any of the lists in Scripture are intended to give us an exhaustive list, nor do I think we're supposed to combine all of them and then assume that that is the exhaustive list. I don't think that's the way this works. What he does here is he explains some of these gifts. And he speaks to how they are to be used, what their main function is. And again, as we've already looked at, we can see this. The main function is the common good, the building up of the body of Christ. It's helpful to know that the the context in which we use our spiritual gifts is not two hours a week, but 24 hours a day, okay? You see, some people have the misconception that spiritual gifts are only used on Sunday for one to two hours when we meet together corporately at church. Certainly, many of your gifts should be on full display as we meet together corporately. But but spiritual gifts are intended to do more than that. They're intended to be used outside of our corporate gathering, when you're meeting with other believers, when you're counseling people and doing small group ministry and serving people meals throughout the week. All of our gifts are to be used all of the time. We are called to an every member ministry, all of us involved in ministry, that is also an every moment ministry. In other words, let me say it like this. If you're a Christian, you're on call to be a Christian 24-7, not just me. You're like, but you get paid to do this. I know, but I didn't make the rules, okay? <laughs> I just want you to see that, that God may want to use you in so many more ways, at so many more times than even you realize, and that this is a privilege as much as it is a responsibility. Our whole lives are called to be living sacrifices, not just at certain moments or times or places, all the time. Therefore, our gifts are to be in operation all the time or as often as God calls upon us. They're to be used in humility and in service of others. And as we take a brief look at these here, let's look first at the gift of prophecy. Now, what is the gift of prophecy? Let me just give you a really short definition, but I think it's accurate and helpful. Prophecy is authoritative divine revelation. It is God communicating through an individual divine truth. Divine truth that is perfect, it is 100% God's Word, therefore it is 100% authoritative. Now, the gift of prophecy is the first one in this list, but it is also the most controversial in this list. Paul exhorts um, the one with the gift of prophecy, look what he says here, to prophesy in proportion to our faith. Now, there's two ways that you can take this, and, and how you take this could actually end up giving you an understanding of what Paul means here, even by the Understanding of prophecy. The first way you could take this idea of of prophesying in proportion to our faith is a subjective one. Here's what I mean by that. In other words, to be faithful to the gift that God has given and to prophesy the revelation of God that God has clearly given. In other words, the idea here is that don't say more than what God has told you to say. In accordance or proportion to your faith is, listen, if God says say this, then say this. Don't try to add to it. Don't try to take away from it. Say what God tells you to say. But the other way this can be taken is in an objective sense. In fact, it can be translated just as easily, and some argue actually it's, it's more compelling to translate it this way not in proportion to our faith, but in proportion to the faith. You see the difference? So our faith makes it personal and subjective, what God's saying to me. The faith makes it objective. In other words, we are to use the standard that God has given us. Any word that is communicated through the mouth of a prophet must align with and be held up to the standard of the faith, the word of God. So a prophet cannot contradict God's revelation. It can't conflict in any way with what God has said or what the faith teaches. It's possible that it actually has a bit of a double meaning here. That you shouldn't say anything if it's very clear that God's not telling you to say it. And if God's telling you to say something that conflicts with the standard of the faith, then obviously you ought not to say it. It's not God telling you that. Men and women both prophesied in the New Testament... And they did so for the upbuilding and encouragement of the church. There was a need for prophets in both the Old and the New Testaments. There is both the gift of, of prophecy, but there is a prophetic office that's established in the Old Testament. And it runs throughout the New Testament. And the reason that the prophets were so necessary is because the Word of God had not yet been completely revealed. God was using prophets to reveal things, not exhaustively, but things that would become what we could say is inscripturated or canonized. They would be written down and codified in what we now call the Bible. But you have to understand that that God was progressively revealing this truth. It didn't just all just come at one time. It came over hundreds and even thousands of years. The Bible was being given through prophetic utterances. Thus says the Lord. Sometimes, um, prophets would do one of two things, uh, foretell something in a predictive nature. They would predict a a flood, first think of Noah. They would predict a famine. They would predict predict something in the future. But more often than not, what we see is the prophets were foretelling. They were telling people what God said and what God meant and what God wanted from His people. And these two aspects of prophecy are incredibly important. Christians possessed, I want you to think about this, only the Old Testament in the the first century. For a good chunk of the life of the early church, the only scriptures that believers had was the Old Testament. And the apostles were either in the process of writing the New Testament, but the point is it was not yet complete. Now, there are some people who believe that prophets still exist today, that the gift of prophecy, the office of a prophet is, is still in existence today. Um, others believe that the Holy Spirit no longer gives the gift of prophecy. And this is a pretty major debate in the evangelical world. Those who do not believe that God still gives the gift of prophecy um, don't deny that God still works in supernatural ways, that the Spirit of God leads and prompts and guides, but they deny that the gift itself is actually in operation as it was in the first century in particular. I lean towards this latter view. But I want to say that this is a very complex issue, and there are good Christians who disagree on this. Really good, really godly, really faithful people disagree on this issue. And and it is quite complex. We don't have the time to get into it all today. And what I would just say this, because it's so complex, and because there is disagreement um, in, in evangelical circles, and there has been for so long, this is an issue that should not be of primary importance. It is not a determining factor of whether or not you are saved, whether you truly love God, And good Christians can and do disagree on this. They can even function in the same body and disagree on this. But why do some people believe it's no longer operative? That's a fair question. The answer is that it seems implied from what Paul has written about the church's foundation. If you were to read um, in Ephesians two, verse twenty, in particular, Paul says there that the foundation of the church is—it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He says, in other words, Paul identifies two separate offices that come with gifts. And he actually says that these things are unique in the establishing of the New Testament church. They played a unique role, and that unique role is revelatory. God was revealing the truth of the New Testament. Things that were previously concealed were now being revealed. God was explaining the reality of the church and how the church was supposed to function. Things that were not previously known. The apostles and the prophets seemed to have all died in the first century, which marked the completion of the church's revelation, the foundation right here. here. Here then, the book was codified, and therefore, the argument goes, there's no longer a need for the apostles and prophets. And by the way, most Christians would agree that, that the gift of apostleship, the gift of apostles, is no longer present with us. Why? Why? Because they fulfilled their function at the time. They laid the foundation. They played that pivotal role at the onset of the church, and now the church is being built up upon that foundation. The gift of prophecy in the apostolic period was a crucial and necessary gift. And as with all the gifts, regardless of how you feel, whether it's in existence today or not, as with all the gifts, it was not used for private boasting, but for the edification and upbuilding of the church. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, He who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort. And just because or if the gift of prophecy has indeed ceased, it does not mean that the gift of itself is entirely irrelevant. The gift of prophecy actually echoes in our own day through the prophetic scriptures. We hold in our hands the prophetic writings We hold fast to them. We proclaim them. Every Sunday, a preacher gets up and preaches the word. He is expounding the prophetic word of God. The second gift he identifies here is service. The word service here means activities of a practical nature. It's associated with, with people, in the, in the ancient days especially, who waited on tables, those who were servers, as we call them even in our day. Servants in the ancient world, by the way, were often viewed as lower-class citizens. That's why it was so shocking. Remember in John 13, Jesus, he puts on the costume of a servant. Remember that? He's sitting with his disciples at the Last Supper, and he wraps his waist in a cloak, a towel, and he walks around the room with a basin of water, and he begins to wash his feet. What's so unique about that situation is he was actually taking the lowest form of servanthood possible in the ancient world. Even Jews, listen, Jews weren't allowed to wash other Jews' feet. It was reserved for Gentile slaves. It was beneath even Jewish servants. And here is Jesus stooping low, the God of this world washing his creation's feet. Servanthood often had to do with status, which is why it's so important that in the New Testament we see that Jesus identified as a servant and a suffering servant at that. In fact, it was part of his mission and his role to be a servant. But there are some people, listen, while all people are called to serve, every one of us, it's not, we're not off the hook in serving. There are some people who are gifted with ongoing activities of practical nature. They're really good at serving. Some of you have this gift. You, you, just, you naturally long to, desire to, and enjoy meeting the practical needs of the church. Something needs to be done. You jump up and, and you take care of it. And by the way, this can look a thousand different ways as each church has countless different needs, setting up and tearing down, offering food and coffee, uh, doing connection in the church, connecting people into the body, bringing people meals, or fixing, uh, organizing teams to fix people's homes. People look around, and they see the practical needs, and they say, listen, that is what I must do. Those who are called into this ministry of serving are to serve. You see that? Isn't it redundant? You're like, yeah, okay. I, okay. But that's his point. It's like, listen, if you're called to it, guess what? Do it. Do what God has gifted you to do and what God has called you to do. The next gift here is teaching. Now, the teacher's task was to nurture believers in their faith, to move people from one stage of maturity to another. And the job of the teacher was not to give new revelation. That's what distinguishes it in many ways from prophecy. But it's instead, to expound the meaning of what had already been revealed and to explain it so that people could understand. Think of Paul, who, who often went, um, yes, prophesying, but then staying in villages and teaching them and, and instructing people. Think about what God called the disciples to do in the Great Commission, teaching people to observe all that he had commanded them. The ability to teach is often associated, and, and in many ways rightly so, with the office of pastor or elder, same, same office. Because that office requires the ability to teach, the gift to teach, the ability to teach sound doctrine. That's what the leaders of the church are called to as one of their primary tax, tasks, the, the ability to refute those who contradict. You see, the call of a pastor, an elder, is to be able to know the Word of God, to handle it with care, to articulate it faithfully, to defend against any aberrations, any errant theology. The, the, the leaders of the church are called to be the keepers of the theological gate, We have been tasked, myself included, with making sure the Word of God is faithfully upheld, that the faith once and for all delivered and entrusted to the saints is just that. It it is protected, it is preserved, and it is faithfully proclaimed because the enemy wants to destroy the church, and often the way he does it is by corrupting sound doctrine. Those who are called to teach are to teach. This doesn't have to be done in a public nature. This can often be done because some of you are gifted to teach, and you're not not in the office of an elder, and that's okay. You're called still to teach. Maybe it's one-on-one. Maybe it's in a small group setting. Maybe it's starting a Bible study and working through the truths of the gospel with others to help them grow in their faith. The next gift here is exhortation. This just means a sharp encouragement. It's a call to action, it is an urging of people to live in a way that is consistent with the truth of the gospel. It is not just telling people what the Bible means. It's telling people what they must do with what God says. It is pressing the truth into people's lives. An exhortation can take the form, uh, many forms. It can take the form of warning, of advice, of counsel, of correction, but it most often takes the form, listen, this is really important, of encouragement, of encouragement. In fact, that's one way this word can actually be translated. Teachers can explain something, but exhortation actually is something quite different. It's an extension of teaching. Teaching is directed to the mind, to to understanding, to comprehension, but exhortation is directed to the heart and to the the will. It's, It's directed to the conscience. It's directed to the feelings. And I actually think that preaching is the pairing of the gifts of teaching and exhortation. So you think, what is preaching? It's teaching and exhortation. That's what I do every Sunday. I try to get up here as best I can, and I explain what the text means, and then I try to exhort you, encourage you to take the Word of God and actually apply it to your life, to live it out faithfully and display the glory of God. It's a military term. You see, someone needs to give the rally cry, the call to action. This, by the way, is not the gift of condemnation. It's the gift of encouragement, not discouragement. It is not the gift of exhortation to run around and and let people know how bad they are and how awful they're doing. Now listen, the gift of exhortation may have a degree, and it ought to, of bringing conviction. A conviction that awakens the sleepy, the disobedient, the apathetic, or even the rebellious, but most importantly, it pushes people to seize hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be refreshed with the grace of Jesus Christ, to be empowered by the Spirit of God. And it breathes life and hope and encouragement into the soul. Next, we see the gift of contribution or the gift of giving. The idea here is dispersing resources, and more often than not, it means financial resources. Giving how? Generously. And if you have this gift, here's one of the ways you know you have this gift, okay? God has given you things to distribute, okay? That's how you know you have the gift of distribution. If you look at your hands like, I got nothing, you're like, well, maybe God hasn't given you that gift. Or there's there's another reason. Maybe maybe because you squander what God gives you in ways that are not pleasing to him. The whole body of Christ should give. This is actually a theme with all of these gifts. There's a sense in which a lot of these gifts, if not all of these gifts, are supposed to be displayed at least in part in in some of our lives. We are all to give. We're all to contribute. There are some individuals who have the ability to give in abundance. Over and above what might be expected and what is typically seen as normal. Simply put, God gives certain people great wealth. And contrary to some Christians' beliefs, God is not anti-money. It is not money that is the root of all evil. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. Money is morally neutral. The Bible never demonizes money, nor does it deify money. The trap that believers fall into is loving money and treating money like an idol. But money is often given to people as a platform to give generously and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Money is necessary for ministry to continue to take place. And all throughout the New Testament, you want to know what we see? Believers are called to give, and they're called to give generously, sacrificially, and they're called to give cheerfully to the work of God. And God takes those resources, and the gospel continues to advance. This is not simply, by the way, a general philanthropy. It's not just like giving to to charitable organizations. It is predominantly about giving to the Lord's work in the church of Jesus Christ. And all of the giving is a wonderful display, by the way, of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 8, Paul gives the motivation behind this that he who who is rich became poor so that in him we might become rich. That motivates our giving. We should be generous because God has been so generous to us. But you see, far too often the problem in the Christian life is, is we, put, we put ourselves and our desires and our wants above God and His desires, and sometimes we relegate God not even to second place or third place in how we spend our money, but, but, but to last place. Sometimes God increases our wealth, and in doing so, he is, he is often calling us to likewise increase, listen, not our standard of living, but our standard of giving, The next gift here is leadership. This this gift occurs and is used in many contexts, and it could be speaking mainly um, in the church of the office of the church. Excuse me, as in like an elder, a pastor, or a deacon. But it applies in many other contexts. People are called to lead at home, maybe at work, and, and in different ministries in the life of the church. And the call here, do you notice how how is this gift to be used with zeal? The word can be translated as eagerness and diligence. So why why is it so important that a leader has this kind of zeal, this kind of eagerness and this kind of diligence? Because those in spiritual leadership in the church, whether they're pastors, deacons, whether they're staff members, whether they're ministry team leaders. Listen, the the call here is not to wing it. It can be easy to wing spiritual leadership, to fly by the seat of your pants and to, to not put the kind of effort in that's required. And the reason this is important, listen, is because it is a dangerous thing to lead other people. You better be sure you're leading in the right direction. If you're not, it can be deadly consequences, devastating. It is a huge responsibility. So it requires intense effort and and motivation, careful thought and prayer, study, preparation. You see, in leading, the leader is leading people for Christ, to Christ, to be like Christ. It's about coming to the aid of others for their spiritual good. And by the way, the reason that zeal is required is because this can be an exhausting task. It can be demanding and it can be discouraging. I've been told that in this season, the last two years, we've all, you know, what it's been like and how frustrating this has been. But I've been told that there are more pastors leaving ministry right now than perhaps ever before, at least in the last century. So, well, why is that? So many pastors are, are trying to lead and feel so blind and they feel like they, they can't lead people and people aren't following and they're saying things like, I didn't sign up for this. There's so much division, they're experiencing so many attacks. They're seeing so much lack of commitment amongst the people that they thought were with them. And it's so disheartening and discouraging. And listen, that's why I think the scriptures say listen, if you're going to be a leader, you need to lead with zeal. You got to know what God has called you to, and you got to do it well, which means this you got to have thick skin. You got to have patience with all different kinds of people. You have to have gentleness, and there has to be a passionate, diligent perseverance. The last gift here is mercy. We're all to show mercy, and yet there is a specific way that God endows some with the ability to help those in need. They have this this longing and this capability of showing such immense compassion for for others, such care. Some of you are so specifically gifted by God to focus upon the weak and the needy, the, the downcast, and you do it, the Bible says, with cheerfulness. That's the calling, to, to do it not, not, why cheerfulness? Because you can begin to quickly, when you're serving people and when you're serving the lowly, you can begin to become resentful, frustrated with people. And instead, he says, no, 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 you need to do it with cheerfulness. You say, why, why cheerfulness? Well, I think because perhaps, it's hard to say this, but, but maybe like none of these other gifts The gift of mercy flows out of the gospel like no other. Isn't it interesting that that we end this little section on mercy, but we began it with mercy? Do you ever think about that? I I think this is what the Bible calls an inclusio. It's an intentional, intentional bookend by the Spirit of God and by Paul. In other words, as we come to the end, you know what he says? He says, I began by appealing to you by the mercies of God. You're supposed to live out of the mercies of God, out of all that he's done for you. And he ends this by calling those, listen, who have been gifted to show mercy to to do so with cheerfulness. Why? Because God has so cheerfully shown mercy to you. We respond in like manner. Lastly and quickly, why do we have them? Why, Why do we have these gifts? What are they ultimately for? And again, I said this at the beginning, but the way you answer this question is of the utmost importance. Biblically speaking, it is to manifest the character of God, it is to build up the body of Christ, and it is to display Jesus to the world. We look to Jesus coming out of the mercies of God to be like Jesus and display Jesus. This is our ultimate and fundamental purpose, Paul is looking to rid the church of pride, he's looking to establish unity, he's calling us to celebrate diversity, and he's calling us to enjoy the mutuality of using our gifts in, in a way that is honoring to him and displays his beauty and his majesty in the gospel. None of your gifts, like I said before, are about your identity, your value, or your worth. It's about the body of Christ being strengthened. So, so let me ask you, as you think about this, this morning, this afternoon, Are you using your gifts? You should be seeking to answer this question right now in your heart, in your mind. What is my gift and am I using the gifts for the building up of the body of Christ? And then from that, if you know your gifts, maybe this question pertains to you. What am I doing to hone these gifts, to sharpen these gifts so that I can be more effective and bear more fruit for the gospel? This is Paul's great application here. You are gifted by God's grace. Now know your gift and use your gift. You have them, use them. Get after what you're good at, get after what you got, and fan it into flame. Like Paul says, 2 Timothy 1:6, fan into flame the gift of God. God wants you to refine those gifts with use and practice, with study and preparation. He wants you to be effective and to, to better strengthen the body for the mission of advancing the gospel. It's possible, though, that you can coast. Maybe some of you are. You can neglect the gifts that God has given you, and they can grow rusty Some of you are simply still asking, okay, but I don't even know what my gift is. How do I find out what my gift is? Listen, you don't need to stand here and comb over this list. You don't need to take a spiritual inventory gift test. You don't need to do any of that. Let me tell you what you need to do, okay? A gift often begins with an ability. What are you good at? What do you just do and you seem to be good at? Secondly, it often brings a sense of enjoyment you do it and you just you feel the sense of enjoyment and delight and man i just love serving in this way i love blessing people in this way then comes affirmation You do it in a context where where people around you can say, Wow, I can see how gifted you are. And man, you you could be used in greater ways. And let me help you refine this gift. Let me give you more opportunities. You see, it is tested, it is affirmed, then it is cultivated. And the result in all of it is that the body is built up, Christ is exalted, God is glorified. So, are you using your gifts? Are they flourishing? Or are you sitting on the sidelines? Are you disengaged? Are you unfruitful and ineffective? If so, let me just say this, to, to stir you up a little more, to press you a little further. If you're not using your gift in the body of Christ, you are missing out on one of the greatest sources of joy in the Christian life. You, you realize that so often Christians are grumpy because they're not serving other people. They're self-obsessed And when you're selfish, listen, it just breathes this sense of grumpiness. You believe people exist for you, and so your demands on other people increase, and people never meet your expectations, and you're constantly frustrated and angry, and you don't want to be around people. You want to be isolated. And listen, that is not what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. So my encouragement to you is this. Get off your pew. Get into serving the Lord. Just go find something, somewhere. Start serving the Lord. But let me tell you this, the key is to do it from the right place with the right heart. You see, your gifts don't define you. Christ defines you. But the character of your life demonstrates who you are in Christ. Not your gifts and your abilities. You see that? It's about your character. I was often told this, and I think this is so true, don't ever let your gifts take you to a place your character can't keep you. We can be so obsessed with gifts, external abilities, and talents. But, but God says, listen, your greatest concern needs to be your character. You need to look like Jesus. You need to fight with every ounce of strength you have to be holy and godly, to put off to flee the the passions of your flesh, and to cling to Christ and pursue a transformed mind and a transformed life that looks more and more like Christ. Listen, and when you do that, when you do that, you want to know what happens? The, The heart within you burns with love for Jesus Christ. You start looking like the one you love and loving more the one you start to look like. And then you serve so well and so faithfully. Let me close with this. Genuine love is the supreme motivation for serving. Loving others and loving God. We use our gifts to serve Him out of love for Him. A heart that is fueled by the mercies of God that longs now to to give all glory to God. All of your gifts are nothing if they're not done in love. Just read 1 Corinthians 13. If I have not love, I'm a clanging gong or a cymbal. It doesn't matter how gifted you are. If you don't love God and love others, it is pointless. It is worthless. You have nothing if you have not love. God gives gifts to every believer in order to advance his kingdom and display his glory. And on the last day, God will ask, listen, not what we know about the gifts, but what we did with the gifts he gave us. So as Peter says, Let us use our gifts in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And I love how he punctuates this idea of using our gifts. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Amen.